welcome to Galaxy Brains. The weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. Yo, I'm flying on a breeze, dipping down in the surf. Cause I'm cutting up the rug, there ain't enough to get me bugging. I'm ducking all the haters, know it's time to spread the love and never stop. All of y'all gotta watch me. Everything from rock and rap down to mariachi bands. Counting up my stacks, I'm a bossy man. We came a long way, we fire like hibachi, damn. Freedom is forever, no, we never stop. You can check my stock, see it rising to the top. Always winning, never lost, like it wasn't even possible. Rap sheet long, so you cop it like a constable. Wake up, babe, cause the boy is on the microphone. Put me in, coach, cause you know it's time to fight the zone. Sharpening my teeth every day, so I bite the bone. A dog in the studio when I write the bone. As always, I'm your host, Alex Thorne, head of firm-wide research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, Sam Abbasi, founder, CEO of Hoseki, is our guest. An excellent and interesting app. Sam is an expert also on proof of reserves and covenants, and his app helps you verify your ownership of Bitcoin and crypto assets for a variety of interesting purposes. We'll also check in with our good friend Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading, as always, to talk markets. Before we get to that, I need to remind you to please refer to the link to the disclaimer in the podcast notes and note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice or an offer, recommendation, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Phineas, my friend from the mountains of Vermont, to where do you return this weekend for the holidays? Do you have something special planned? You know, the holidays are always a stressful time. As a as somebody who puts off my planning, <laughs> uh, but going to Miami actually. Oh, let's go! Doing a uh, little switch this year and going south. I like that. It's going to be cold. How about you? Up north, hanging with the family. It's going to be good. No traveling for me this holiday, which is going to be nice. You know, keep yeah. it chill, easy with the kids and the fam. So. Um, I hope everybody has a safe and happy holiday weekend, and we will catch you next week for another episode. We're not taking it off. We're back. But let's get right into this awesome episode now and go to BIMnet. Let's go now to our friend BIMnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. As always, BIMnet, welcome to Galaxy Brains. Thanks for having me. So Bitcoin is still pressing, and crypto markets are still going higher. Yeah, uh, no. Is this Santa rally? Well... Kind of if a you, if you think about Bitcoin, it's basically at a Santa Claus rally almost every month this year. Yeah. Which I think is why it's so compelling to traditional investors. Even the best traditional investors, they look at their portfolio, let's say they were heavily weighted at NASDAQ, maybe up 45%. Not bad. Yeah, not Pretty bad. Good, not actually. bad. Epic. Epic. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, one of the best years in a long time for, for the NASDAQ. Bitcoin's up 150% this year. Mm-hmm. Right. We've had Solana up over 600% this year. <laughs> I, I mean, some of these alt moves have been insane, yeah. like thousands of percents. Crazy. You know, NFTs have you know, done well, et cetera. But high level, there are liquid crypto things that offer competitive uh, alternatives to traditional markets. Right. Especially if you're thinking about like where the money is right now in the world. A ton of it's parked in bonds earning next to no yield. Yeah. Right. Well, not on a relative basis, right? Like, you know, you still you can still get tens, you know, US 10 years at 390. Fantastic. And if you go further out the credit spectrum, you can, you know, boost those yields a little bit. But would I rather be long Bitcoin? Absolutely. Have you seen the recent Bitcoin ads? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. the Dos Equis guy yeah, is yeah. about to be in front of people's faces. <laughs> yeah. Shilling Bitcoin. I, I knew he was a Bitcoiner. You could always tell. I, you could always. He's the <laughs> world's most interesting man. Yeah. Obviously. Of course he likes Bitcoin. It is uh, it's the world's most interesting money. Functionally speaking, there's a new investment vehicle for Bitcoin that's going to unlock tons of money 
that hasn't been able to go in before. I'm very confident it's going to happen, but can you imagine the rug if it doesn't? No, it's going to happen. Yeah. And is. I'm telling you, I, I personally, you know, we've published, yeah, 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 published, yeah. you Funny. know, estimates of, you know, how much the ETF inflows are, are going to be. Which were conservative, by the which way. Which were super conservative. In my head, they're going to be north of 30 yards in the yeah. first year. Wow. At, like That's crazy. Way, way north. The demand we've seen in crypto-related equities. It's high. It's high. We're, we're talking multiple billions over, over the past couple of months. Yeah. And that's not even with an ETF product. Right. Like, like wait for the actual ETF product to, to launch. Can't and wait. and it's, it is game over. Like, the prices you're seeing now are, are just noise. These are introductory prices. Introductory prices. <laughs> Absolutely. There's going to be noise around the actual launch. Yeah. Right? You know, speculation, stuff going up and down. The vol is going to be pretty intense. But... If you're a big picture investor and a big picture allocator, right, you are going to be stepping in. Got to have something. And, and, and in size. Right, you got to have and some. The short term noise is just noise, right? Once the ETF product launches, it becomes a buy and hold asset in the US capital market forever, right? There are, I mean, I don't know about you, but there are things in people's portfolios they don't touch forever. Like, here's what happens you buy something, it goes up, right? you ever want to sell it, you're going to have a taxable gain, right? right. If you're doing it in a, a tax-deferred account, et cetera, like, you're just going to passively keep accumulating because people just run these strategies. And so what it constantly, uh, you know, brings to mind is that an ETF and an ETF in the U.S. is the best combination of things you could possibly have. World's best capital market and world's best wealth creation, uh, financial innovation product ever created yeah right etf in the u.s and it's got a great narrative and all the big boys are joining it's such an easy trade it's so mid-curve <laughs> and like you don't have to be a genius to do it yeah um but that's where we're headed and i, I think you're going to see tremendous inflows and and the price appreciation is really just getting started yeah okay so um it's been a wild year for many reasons the fed though absolutely what's going on with the fed this year it's been a big road i mean they 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 continued to raise rates, then they stopped. They also created like the among the largest like bank bailout programs that's ever been created, right? With the BTFP, is that what it's called? Correct. Um, and expanded usage of the discount yeah. window and things like that. Well, yeah. How would you talk about just? I'm, of course, I'm shifting gears a little bit, but like we're we're at the end of the year. If 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 you know Chair Jay Powell is getting a report card, like what would you say? So, if you're if you believe that their goal was to bring inflation down from 9% to somewhere closer to 2%, which is their target, without harming the employment picture, they've done a great job yep. of doing that, right? But in terms of, like, the long-run sustainability of, you know, this policy, you know, time will tell, right? Because there's still material reinflation risks. You know, they're also letting equity markets and bond markets get way ahead of themselves, with S&P and NASDAQ, you know, almost at fresh year-to-date highs. Russell, I mean, they are at fresh year. Russell's ripping like crazy. Wow. Um, I think that there's going to be a tremendous wealth effect from that. I think mortgage rates dropping are going to bring more buyers into the market and not necessarily more supply. And so home prices could come back up. You've had a tremendous, you know, benefit from oil prices declining meaningfully, but that's not to say they're going to decline permanently and stay low. And so you've got upside risks there. And... High level, this is still a banking system and a financial market in the U.S. that's strung together by the ability of the Fed to print more money. Yeah. And for the the world to not, you know, debase the dollar because of them printing their money. And so, and that's just a function of us having no alternative. But 
how did the U.S. respond to the banking crisis? Oh, we're just going to do this blanket guarantee yeah. of all banking deposits in the U.S. We have the BTFP, right? There is an issue about doing that, right? And it's it, a moral hazard. Correct. The, banks, the moral right? hazard issue. Yeah. And so I don't think, you know, we've yet seen the consequences of that. And I do think that Bitcoin <laughs> plays an interesting Let's role. Go. Uh, not necessarily right now, yeah. but thinking about where monetary policy is going to be in, you know, five years from now or 10 years from now, when we're looking at deficit spending that went totally out of control, national debt levels that are just unsustainable, um, and things of that nature, we're going to think back on these moments and be like, oh, wow, maybe that wasn't a good right. policy choice. It's the same kind of thing a lot of people said in 2000, uh, whenever they did TARP, right? Like, yeah. Uh, Maybe they should have let them fail, right? So then they could learn the lesson, then they don't do it again. And like that's how capitalism is supposed to work, right? Is that? But that's not how capitalism in the U.S. is ever going to work And again. it's definitely it's not how banks work in the yeah. U.S. Because no, banks, absolutely. Are, they're frankly pseudo-government organizations at this point. I mean, truly. I, mean, I don't mean that. They, like, they I, are quasi-government yeah, organizations. Yeah, they really are. Because yeah. first of all, you need crazy levels of registration to even operate one. And the number of banks is declining precipitously over years. But also, like, they are extensions of Fed policy. They are extensions of government policy it's yeah just, i mean they're quasi-government entity right during yeah. the covid they did they processed all of the small business loans and right. all of that and yeah it, yeah so but high level i think i would give the fed a reasonable report card and it's a really hard job and i oh, respect yeah. what jay powell has done i do find the level of coordination a little bit concerning you know, in the, in the sense that Treasury is supposed to be independent from Powell, right? But more and more, it seems like they're ever, you know, intertwined uh, yeah. with how they conduct policy from the Treasury standpoint and monetary stand, standpoint. And I think that's more moral hazard. Yeah, uh, it is. But yeah, do I think all of these things are going to help Bitcoin? Yes, they're going to lower rates <laughs> and let risk assets rip into I love an it. election this, year. Here's the question I didn't ask, but certainly I love asking. <laughs> Okay, wait, so let's, how does this impact Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, they're letting people and assets moon. Well, you know, we're and heading into, uh, there's contrast with that. There's contrast with, to your point, the bank bailouts and then something like Bitcoin, the sort of long-term fiscal sustainability and something like Bitcoin. Um, there's also a, a, a forthcoming, it is going to be a contrast because the halving is yeah. going to happen in April. It's a narrative event more than a like sort of data quantitative event in my opinion at this point, but it's a big narrative event coordinated by code, decentralized network around the world simultaneously will algorithmically incredibly tighten its monetary policy. And guess what the markets say? Uh, guess when they, the markets are betting rate cuts start happening? March, March April, April, May. Yeah. This is exactly what happened I in 2020. They hiked, they, they expanded the monetary base as quickly more quickly and more largely than ever before right at the last having. Yes. So as it's what and, a contrast. And get this, get this. You know, it's a, a nice little, marketing event. There's also uh, a little bit of a contradiction at play with Fed policy, you know, once they start cutting because they're also winding down their balance sheet at the same time, right? And so why are you pursuing easier monetary policy while you're pursuing tighter monetary policy over here with your balance sheet? And so... There's an argument to say that eventually they're going to pause that stuff. And if that pause, you know, lines up with the first rate cut and the halving, it's going to be gangbusters. Beautiful. They're going to be like, the Fed is no longer de decreasing its balance sheet. They're 
then it's like, what what direction is it going to go? It's going right, to ultimately go towards expansion because then it's you can't finance this debt without MMT and right, like all this right, stuff and right. like the arguments are just so clear and I it's know. so obvious well, and it's so reflexive. <laughs> well, everyone is going to go uh, if you celebrate the holidays this weekend. You're going to go home and uh, probably just like Thanksgiving, your, your your parents and your aunts and uncles or whomever it is that hopefully you're spending the holiday with, they may ask about Bitcoin. Um, it's been quite a year. And um, I remember last year we started this at 16.5 and goodness gracious, it's 44K today. It's On its way to like six <laughs> digits. I'll tell um, you. Have a great uh, weekend, Bimnet, and we will actually catch you next year, my friend. So... Thanks so much for having me this year, by the way. And I want to say I appreciate all the listeners out there. It's been a great year, and uh, hopefully we can have a great 2024. Bim to BB from Galaxy Digital Trading. Thank you so much. Let's go now to our guest, Sam Abbasi, founder and CEO of Hoseki. Welcome, Sam, to Galaxy Brains. Thanks, Alex. Sam's an old friend, and I'm very happy to have you on the podcast. Um, we're going to talk about some interesting stuff. But first, let's tell people who you are. Go through a little bit of your story for those who don't know you. By the way, great podcast you did with Marty Bent, which goes into a lot of this as well. Uh, a friend of the pod as well, but sweet, yeah, that was about a year ago now. I think. Yeah, how long have you been in uh, in Bitcoin? It's been almost seven years. Good God! Sir. Yeah, I know yeah. what that's like. It's been a grind over those seven years. It's I've, I've aged about forty years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the reverse Benjamin Button, which himself is reverse. I don't know, right? Like seven equals forty. Um, how did you get interested in Bitcoin? Sort of by accident. I was doing. I guess the story is I was doing uh, research in neuroscience. I loved research. Yeah. I still love research. Uh, but it was tough because the things that I were researching weren't really applicable in real life immediately. It was drug development for a traumatic brain injury. So that takes like 10 years to get into people's hands. Right. I'm not a very patient person. <laughs> and this was 2017. I decided to go into software development, and that's when the crypto market was just rocketing. So I created a software development company uh, down in Miami. That's where I'm from. And um, there was just a lot of demand for people to build crypto tools, um, like ETH wallets, a lot of the ICO stuff back then. And I knew nothing about the space. I don't come from finance. Yeah. So that was my first exposure to derivatives, um, to financial products, uh, to unregulated financial products, essentially. And I just became fascinated. To be honest, ETH was sort of like the entry point because it was very easy for someone who has a full stack development background to build things. Right. And um, the journey into Bitcoin was a bit more involved. But yeah, it was sort of just by chance. So you ran a development company. Mm -hmm. And what you're building wallets and stuff. There were a lot. We were of doing we were doing basic stuff before. It was like websites, uh, basic platforms, um, e-commerce stuff. Nothing really crazy, but there was just a lot of demand for people that wanted to do different types of crypt crypto products. Yeah, like a lot of Bitcoin forks came out that year. Yeah, they did. Uh, we were part of some of that too. Um, <laughs> it was. I mean, admittedly, it was like the dirty part of the space. And it was like a gold rush, though. Nobody. It was. I, I'd say Bitcoiners weren't even. I would say nearly as convicted no, then as they all. are now. At all. I mean, things are a lot murkier. And like anything, in any kind of burgeoning, uh, burgeoning tech or burgeoning industry, uh, the people that are involved that are more risk tolerant or are, 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 are of a certain personality and of a certain disposition. Right. Uh, that isn't mainstream. Um, it isn't very uh, conservative. People forget how like truly Wild West even 2017 was. I mean, I, yeah. I think the biggest exchange at the time may may have been Poloniex. Yeah, um, Bitfinex yeah. was big then too. But like, I mean, this is like a troll box. You're you're doing a trade on Poloniex and I don't talking think Binance smack. existed. They didn't exist. Kraken yet. did, of course. Technically, I think Binance may have been founded in the summer of 2017, but they certainly weren't a player. Right. Yeah, Kraken, Coinbase, um, which makes Bitfinex. me think what 2014 might have been like because. It was already crazy enough then, so imagine three, four years before that. Right. Oh, Lord. Um, and we, I mean, I was interested in Bitcoin then, but I wasn't, like, trading Bitcoin and yeah. stuff, so I don't know. I mean, 
uh, well, you maybe you were on Magic the Gathering online exchange, <laughs> you know? Um, so back then, yeah, it was more opportunistic. Like I was trying to build a company and there was demand for a certain product that, and I had no conviction about the product. It was just, here's, here's, a, here's a new tech stack. Here's business right? for you to exactly. do, to exactly. develop. So, okay, fast forward though. So then what happened? That, that So we did that for about almost two years. We closed up shop because of crypto winter in 2019. Um, and then I went to, so, and, and, you know, admittedly, I was looking for a Bitcoin company to work at. At that point, I understood what Bitcoin was, and I was very strong in my conviction. Um, maybe dogmatic might be the right word, mm-hmm. but I couldn't find a good job. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't find, like, there weren't that many companies that the, the Bitcoin ecosystem wasn't really robust enough or built out. So I found a good opportunity at a company called Algorand in Boston. Yep. Um, and I was trying to make my way to Boston because I met you all at the 2019 MIT Crypto Conference. Yep. You, Amanda, Ryan Stubbe, yep. a few other folks at Fidelity. And Boston seemed like the right place to be, Fidelity specifically. Um, There was no job opening, and Algorand was there. So my thinking was, okay, I I understand the crypto space well enough, and I understand Bitcoin well enough that everything else seems like it's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, But what do I know? You know, I'm only two years into the space. I have no background in finance. Um, I kind of learned, you know, tech not too long ago either. This project is made up of MIT people. Silvio McCalley, a brilliant Smarter than I am. Current SEC chairman Gary Gensler himself said it was a good project back yep, then. Yep. So why say no? Right. Uh, so I gave that a shot. Um, brilliant people, like r- truly amazing people. We worked there for about a year, but that really just strengthened my conviction in Bitcoin. Um, I, I, there, there, there were certain issues with the technology and with the vision of the protocol itself that I thought Bitcoin just did a better job, did a better job at addressing. And then the Fidelity opportunity opened up. Um, yeah, so we we wanted Sam to come to Fidelity, and you know, big companies take a long time. But you did make it to Fidelity. Ultimately, um, did you ever terrible the, timing? Did you ever go to the Fidelity office for the interview? <laughs> uh, and that was it. Because I mean, but you were in Boston to work at Fidelity. Why didn't so you work I moved, in the office? I think what maybe six or eight weeks before COVID hit. Oh yes, Boston was awesome. I was living in the North End. We were all Loved like, "This it. is great. We got yeah. Sam at Fidelity now." Oh crap! March twelfth, closing down. I had the next the seven years of my life for years. outlined out in my mind, and. Uh, it all came crashing down. So at Fidelity, what, you were a Bitcoin developer at Fidelity. Mm-hmm. You were on the at Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Yeah, I was innovation. I was, arm. I was a director in the R and D department, basically. Yeah, and what did you work on? So just to kind of like paint the ground, and give some context. Yeah. Uh, FDAS, Fidelity Digital Assets, what everyone knows as Bitcoin at Fidelity, was spun out of FCAT, which is the incubator. Um, so my job was to research and develop uh, new products that could be either uh, consumed into existing business units or spun out into their own business units like FDAS. Right. So it's a lot of things. Bitcoin custody, open source Bitcoin custody, some lightning research with uh, MIT's business school Sloan, some more audit things that were zero knowledge proof related. Um, and then ultimately at the end of it, it was all proof of reserves. Um, so those four things were what I really focused on. Yep. And so I remember one of the things that you did was you worked a lot with proof of reserves and covenants and, or I should say vaults. We used to call them vaults. I don't know if right. that's a different thing, but it, they, they can use covenants. Yeah. Um, vaulted custody, more robust custody, mm-hmm. right? Well, what is that? Complicated custody. Complicated. Yeah. But powerful. Yeah. W- Very what, powerful. What could that allow or what, either the prototype that you were building open source, you, you did work on a lot of the open source work on it. Um, yeah. So to give credit where credit's due, this is all Bob McKellarath's research. Yeah. All I did was productize it. Yeah. Bob did all the hard work <laughs> yeah. before I came. Shout out Bob. Bitcoin Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Bob's Bob's incredible. I don't know where Bob is. Probably on a boat somewhere. I think so. Right. In the Caribbean or somewhere. Or yeah. in Fiji. Um, <laughs> And uh, with Spencer Hommel as well, we did, we did this work together. Um, Shout and out Spencer. Brian Bishop. Uh, yeah, and Brian Cancer. Bishop, you, they published a paper. You guys published a paper. Right, we published two, I think. And then you also, not to derail, because I do want to ask more about covenants and mm-hmm. custody and, and proof of reserves a lot more. But you also worked on a paper with, what, KPMG? 
Uh, with KPMG, Deloitte, uh, proof of Nick from Castle, yeah, yeah proof Nick, of reserves. Nick Carter. It yeah. was the practitioner's guide. Yeah, how yes. to do proof of reserves or like exactly. the best practices and stuff. Exactly. So this is a cause near and dear to both of our hearts, mm -hmm. and, and we'll get a little bit more into proof. But again, on on on, on covenants and yeah. custody, like what is that? So that was my first project at Fidelity. Um, massive learning curve because I understood Bitcoin at the protocol level, but I realized I didn't understand the granular details of Bitcoin. For instance, how transactions work. Uh, it's actually quite intricate and it's brilliant. A, a Bitcoin transaction is two steps and it's exactly like a physical check. The check has to be signed, only you can sign it, and you've got to take it to the bank for funds to move. Yep. Doing one of those things is incomplete. So just like a Bitcoin transaction, you've got to sign the transaction and broadcast it to the global Bitcoin bank. You can only do one though. You can sign a transaction and not broadcast it. So that's like someone gives you a signed check, it's valid, but you haven't cashed a check, but it is still valid. Right. All you got to do is cash it. Hasn't yet been processed. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So Covenants exploited that just basic function of how signature verification works and how signatures and Bitcoin transactions work, where you can pre-sign transactions and basically predestine where they're going to go um, for things like inheritance, for things like advanced security. Uh, the advancing we were doing was, del was deleting the private key. So they can't be spent in any other way. Now, there's issues with that. You can't provably delete something. So there's some security vulnerabilities, right? Right. But generally, it was... It was exploiting the financial concept of covenants, which are uh, you can and or cannot do things with this asset. So, for instance, um, you know, in some niche cases in like real estate and, and, and property investment, uh, this property can't be sold to like an investment group, for example. Can only be uh, sold to a family or, correct, or something Correct, to maintain like the integrity of the neighborhood right. or whatever. And things like loan to debt ratios as well for more advanced types of covenants. Um, so this was the same thing. Uh, these funds can only be spent to this address and the keys are deleted so they can't be spent anywhere else. So if someone- the transaction has already been written. So now there's no correct. keys to create a new transaction. Not broadcast, but written. Right. Exactly. Um, so if someone does compromise that transaction, if they do compromise your custody setup, all they can do is broadcast it to where it was going to go so anyway. So they don't actually find keys. They find a pre-signed transaction. They find a signed check. All they could do is Let's be take like- it to the bank. Yeah. And the bank would be like, well, this this thing goes- This is to, going to this account. Yeah. It, that's, it can only go to that account. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like a wire transfer instruction that's already been written. You can't exactly. like, you could destroy it. You could find it and destroy it. Maybe that's what you could do. Just to, but that only causes havoc. It doesn't. Well, you have multiple copies. Yeah, yeah. Right. So even, even even in that case, you're you're uh, protected. There's some edge cases where if someone compromises your entire custody setup, then you know you're really screwed. But the objective there is risk uh, mitigation. So if they do compromise your setup, they can either seal a bit of funds or they can't seal funds in general because they're only being sent to one place. I really do like this idea and you could do this. I could do this myself. I could mm -hmm. sign it without any, and I raise covenants because there are multiple proposals in Bitcoin development right. to add more robust covenant scripting capabilities. BIP 119 obviously comes to yeah. mind. There's TX hash. There's a bunch of others that it's, enable more robust covenants. It's tricky because there's some social considerations because I mean, the fear is like the government imposing some strict draconian or yeah. know, arbitrary regime. So this is like recursive covenants they talk about, like right. sort of never ending covenants, right? Like this can't, that I encumber the coins forever, even after they're spent once, twice, three times. Um, well, recursive is a nightmare, but I mean, even 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 a even a lighter version of that is simply funds sent from Coinbase can only be sent to whitelisted wallets, for example, right? And it's one thing if they impose that as a rule on Coinbase, a centralized business. It's another thing if they require them on to the utilize protocol, protocol. It's baked in. But I could right now take my self-custodied Bitcoin, pre-sign a transaction to spend it to a different address that I control mm -hmm. or into a custodian for all I care, into, into my digital asset account at Fidelity, for example, yeah. and then just destroy the keys and then just store that transaction as my Bitcoin. Yeah. 
and it's it's safer in that. And I still want to keep that safe because mostly because I don't want to lose it, right? But um, then if you come and hack me, all you can do is effectively move my Coinbase, my my bitcoins to Fidelity. That's right. all you can. Now it's, you a, know, it's a it's elegant in that way. It is. It's very intricate. I can't recommend doing that for like, for like a retail audience because it is very complex. You can easily lose access to your funds, um, totally. which is already an issue. Uh, this is really more for you know exchanges for right. advanced custodians for high net worth individuals who have the resources to you know properly ha like create this regime for their own custody. But I won't personally do that on my funds, for example. Well, like, I mean, it's safer, I think, for the average self-custody person to use a hardware wallet. Yeah, or, or I I prefer a multi-sig setup, which and there are many companies that will help you with that. Yeah. You know, the guys at Anchor Watch, Rob and, and Becca, like they've come up with some e interesting ways that you can be quite expressive using um, uh, Anchor Pulsar's Miniscript yeah. Yeah. without needing any new functionality. Apparently deep in there in Bitcoin script, the coding language, there are really interesting ways to build more expressive covenants already. It's just too hard to use. So Miniscript actually allows you to unlock some capabilities. Well, that's a brilliant thing about Bitcoin. Like all, like you can, you can actually exploit it to, to really interesting ex, uh, extents, but it's, it's just not as easy as other protocols, unfortunately. And yeah, no, so half the stuff that we've added to Bitcoin as a community, of, it's like discoveries, right? We discovered Bitcoin could be used this way. Right. So let's transition now to the proof of reserve side. Sure. I guess sticking with like your initial research into it, but eventually we'll talk about, let's talk about Hoseki, what you're building now. Yeah. So I was a co-author on the practitioner's guide to proof of reserves, which was, um, I don't know if sponsored is the right word, but the Chamber of Digital Commerce was the one that organized the whole thing. So myself, uh, Nick Carter from uh, Castle, uh, some folks from KPNG, Deloitte, and a few other auditing firms. It was basically, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a holistic assessment of what proof of reserves is and how to apply it. Um, so I think the beginning is a history of proof of reserves. Nick covered that. It was a, then, 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 a, then a taxonomy on what these terms are and how they apply to the auditing world. Um, and then my bit was how to actually implement it, how an exchange can become compliant with the proof of reserves regime if they choose to do so, both with zero knowledge um, implementations for the liabilities as well as basic asset verification on-chain. So that was brilliant. I mean, that was so fascinating for me because I— It was I, pretty early, too. This was, again, like 2020, 2020 2021. 2020. Yeah. Yeah. Or no, three we years published ago. it 2021, maybe. Yeah, but, but I mean, two, three years ago, um, obviously since FTX in particular, this has become— a big deal. I mean, none of us are visionaries. We just looked at what happened in the last couple of years and right. said we should do something about this. And it and turns it out happening. we have the technology. And nothing's really happened since. Some, some are doing it. I agree. That's slow growing. There is a an excellent uh, bill that was introduced in the Senate by uh, Senators Tom Tillis and John Hickenlooper called the Proof Act, which right. aims to move this specific ball forward. There was HB 1666 from the Texas House that I helped write as well. So that actually is law now, mm -hmm. I think, in Texas. So yep. I, hopefully that will result in, you know, if you're a U.S. crypto exchange that wants to service Texas, one of probably the largest markets, you would have to comply with that. Well, the hope is that that bill is a template that other states can just adopt. Yeah. And they should because... Um, We've already done the work. I just mean it's sort of like GDPR in Europe. Like if you're a global company and you got to implement it there, a lot of them just sort of implement it exactly. everywhere. Exactly. And sort of maybe that will happen too. So we have a ways to go in terms of adoption of proof of reserves. But what are you guys building at Hoseki? So we're taking this concept of proof of reserves and exhausting it. We want to financialize Bitcoin. That's the objective. Yeah. And in order to do that, you have to have a robust system of property rights. Every advanced nation has a robust way to express ownership of your property. The example I paint is um, there's a great book. Oh, I'm blanking on the name now, but it talks about uh, assets in the de in the developing world. It talks about how people in Egypt, for instance, are actually quite rich in the assets they own. They just don't have a means to leverage them because they can't express ownership of, the, of their property rights. So here, for instance, when you buy real estate, you have to get title insurance because you have to verify that the person you're buying it from really owns the house. Right. And the insurance isn't in, in case it turns out they didn't. Okay. Bitcoin, 
You don't need any of that. Right. It's you either do or you don't. You can verify you own it both at the macro level and at the micro. So what's so unique about Bitcoin as opposed to any other asset class is you can actually audit the entire supply to the smallest unit as a random third party. You don't have to have any special permissions. That doesn't apply to USD nor to gold. No one knows exactly how many dollars exist in the world, nor gold. But Yeah, USD can, definitely not. <laughs> but with certainty, you can audit Bitcoin supply, but you can also do it at the micro level. Uh, you can you can verify to me uh, mathematically without any doubt that you own X amount of Bitcoin. And that's right. very, very powerful. And you can do it selectively. Like it's not because we're not account-based also. Right. I mean, of course, on Ethereum, you could have multiple accounts, but like I can say, I just want to prove I own these coins. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying those are all the coins, but I am saying these ones I own. Exactly. Which is actually quite powerful too, because there's a privacy element as well. Yep, yep. Frankly, you know, it's, it's not even like I want to see this happen. I think we need a system like this in order to really um, build this new monetary regime. If, if, if you're thinking about a Bitcoin standard or something like that, if you don't want to have a credit system on top of it, then you're living in a very austere, you know, potentially financially dark world that almost looks futile in practice. Uh, you need you need credit expansion, which I know Bitcoiners are sort of like averse to, but frankly, we've all grown up in a sort of a QE, well, generations of, of QE systems. I, I mean, and even if we don't have like monetary base debasement, monetary right. debasement, which is not what we're talking about, right. lending and credit is growth. Mm -hmm. That's how a person with an idea, but not the capital to enact it, creates wealth. Right. That's how they build you know, if you're a farmer, you want to expand to the field over. Well, you you have the tractors and seeds for the current farm. But in order to farm that and generate more wealth, you need to borrow typically to get another tractor and more seeds, right? And eventually the, the proposition between you and the lender or the investor as well, similar, is that you'll create more wealth than you borrowed and everyone will grow their wealth together, right? That That's the basics of credit. So we've, we've, we've really swung the other way in terms of like uh, credit products. We're, we're living in a world where you can like Uber Eats and uh, and, 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 and pay, pay, pay later. So you have credit <laughs> even for like the smallest things like you yeah, know, yeah. getting getting a burger. Um, but Which you, is extreme to be clear. I which mean, is very extreme yeah. and it's not healthy and it's not robust and it's very unstable. But if you don't have credit, you're, you can't move up. You can move down. But you're stuck, which yeah. is why I think it's quite futile. Maybe that is what the future looks like, but we have to recognize it's very different than, than the world we live in today. And so I think having credit products that leverage Bitcoin is critical for us to really have a functioning, robust economy in the future. And so how does proof of reserves or verification, yes. like, how does that help? So, I mean, really the most basic use case that we started with was, hey, man, I want to get a mortgage. I don't want to sell my Bitcoin. I'd rather not. I'd right. rather just tell you I own X amount, like every other asset that I have. Right, because they usually say you go to for a mortgage application, they say we need like the last three months of bank statements yeah. or like brokerage statements. Last or, 60 days. Yeah, just prove what you- assets. Yeah, just prove what you have. That'll help the lender determine how much, how, how big of a loan to give you. Yeah, but try walking into a bank with a with a cold card. Right. <laughs> or, a, or a Trezor. Dear sir, I swear this Bitcoin <laughs> here on uh, blockstream.info or on mempool.space, that's my Bitcoin, sir. And you can try explaining to them what signature verification is, but they're going to ask you to leave. Yeah. Um, there aren't really good form factors. Well, they have no mechanism shit. to do it. Right? No, and, you know, like the broker's not going to try and figure out cryptographic verification right. on the fly. Right, so if anything, they need someone to help them with so it. So it's that or a screenshot of your Trezor UI. Yeah. But at the same time, I, I felt that was insulting. Like, we're only cutting edge of finance. I'm, I'm relegated to taking well, screenshots. And, and, of course, that can be forged. I mean, it's certainly yeah. not very good. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So Hoseki is building this platform that allow oh, the tooling that allows both the counterparty and the potential borrower to express ownership and verify ownership of their assets in order to leverage Bitcoin and 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 get credit ultimately. So I can say I have five Bitcoin and I can 
you what use the app to sign a message and prove that? Yeah, a few different ways. So we have to integrate holistically. So we integrate from both the exchanges and wallets and also just on-chain signature verification support. So depending on where your assets are, uh, the counterparty, the organization on the platform can audit you. They'll send you an invitation. They'll come on to Hoseki, plug in your device, sign for different addresses, or log into your Coinbase or other exchange account. And then they can, you can selectively then share which assets you want to share with them. Always toggle it on and off. So data provisioning is built in. Cool. And they'll just see a clean view of you, the assets you're sharing with them, and they can send things like subsequent verification. For instance, yeah. like proving ownership once means nothing necessarily. Right. It, it may mean something, but maybe you need it ongoing. Right. Yeah. Right. So if you have a loan for, let's say, five, 10 years, maybe the counterparty wants to verify you own this thing in perpetuity every quarter, every month, whatever it is, easily send a request, you sign and they get the verification. I see, this is very interesting because this is kind of like, one of the criticisms I've seen about proof of reserves at the exchange level is like, well, they could just like borrow the money, yeah, borrow exactly. the coins right before the auditor comes in. Um, but that really only works like on a one-time basis. That like, and, and we were very adamant and very thoughtful about building this sort of clearinghouse model of Bitcoin data ownership. Yeah. So for instance, if you sign for an address, uh, no other user on the platform can claim ownership of the same address. I see. If you delete the address, again, same thing, you can't add it for, I think we have the timeout to be like 60 days or something. So, we, so we, we're, we're, we're basically mirroring the existing world and amplifying it and optimizing it yep. with better technology. It's very cool. And, and yes, I like you have exchanges. Some people store their Bitcoins there. It's or just, whatever, just how the world works. they are. Yeah. But it's really, really cool. There, I don't know of another asset where you could actually be self cut. I can't be like, here's a proof that I have these coins in my safe, right? But Bitcoin well, allows so you to do that from even from self custody. People laughed at me when I first when I when I when I was first pitching this idea because I kept saying I want to take the concept of proof of reserves that exists at the institutional level and bring it down to the to the retail level because I mean, well, I was told that I'm my own bank, right? But but I can't borrow. I off can't it. do anything yeah. as my as my own bank. I can just store it or send it. Right. Yeah. I should be able to at least prove to someone else that that I that I that I have these assets. So it, so yeah. we think again, this is just the the sort of foundation for this new monetary paradigm. That's very cool. So then what, like other so mortgages, but then maybe other types of collateral yeah. verification. The whole the whole like credit industry really. Um, there there's some edge cases that we've uh, been fortunate enough to experience to like visas and passport applications again. So really yeah. in the Caribbean That's mainly. Um, but again, the same thing. They just have to prove that they own assets, they own financial assets. Right. And if you have Bitcoin, if you have crypto, you just don't have a good way of doing it. It's a global asset. I mean, it, you know, you can think about, there's plenty of different use cases and sentiments about Bitcoin all around the world. You know, if you're in Turkey, then your Bitcoin's at an all-time high against the Lira or in Argentina. Maybe you store your wealth there. If you're working with the Human Rights Foundation, then you're using Bitcoin maybe to like censor, uh, censorship resistantly pay activists who or help them fund their activism, right? There's many uses, but it is global. But no matter what use, it is global. So like there, I mean, there could be many reasons. Yeah, so I've been fortunate enough to, to, to travel a lot of the world and see how this could be applicable in different places um, for several different reasons. And I think that's some of... You know, when I talk to American Bitcoiners, a lot of them are missing that context. They see it purely as an investment, but they're missing the almost like survival uh, element of this asset. Because you talked about property rights being so icon uh, important. It is it's one of the main reasons the U.S. economy and capital markets are so vibrant. It's it's our it's also our legal system. They have a strong rights. legal framework. Yeah, exactly. If you're in a country with very weak property rights where, you know, a, a dictator or just anyone, a, a official can just take your home or there's no even if they're not going to take it, if there's no verifiable trusted paper trail to prove ownership, right. something like Bitcoin could be extremely It's valuable. the same narrative as inflation. Uh, you just can't plan 
you can't save. Yeah. And ultimately, you can't move up. Very interesting. Okay, a couple other interesting sort of things bubbling in my head when we talk about this. Final message. Remember this thing Odell used yeah. to do? Yeah. It was kind of like a dead man switch, kind mm -hmm. of like a covenant. It was like, I think for his, it was send Bitcoin if I don't come in and update. The, it was like in a live signal. And then, yeah, you if, like if you broadcast, don't receive it, you basically keep broadcast. Right. Um, is that, I don't know. Is that a thing? Uh, I don't know if he still has that up. Can you use? I don't think it is up. But can you use covenants for that? Like, is that the type of thing you could like? Yeah. Something well, because like, you can you can you can build that agnostic to the Bitcoin protocol and just trigger a transaction to broadcast if it doesn't receive a message. Yeah, you can totally do that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there were some. I can't I can't remember now exactly, but Lightning had some had some sort of construct that's around cool. this too. That's cool. By the way, can exchanges? You're you're building this now for retail collateral verification primarily. Like, is there going to be a boom in? I mean, if this HB in Texas becomes widely adopted or if the Senate bill, the proof act becomes law, like won't there be a boom in proof of reserves? So we're not retail focused. Um, I, we, we, we were in the beginning. The, so the evolution of Hoseki was first, it was very primitive. It was, let me print a statement that has a Hoseki letterhead, my name and address and the assets I want to prove ownership of yep. because the broker, the lender wants to see something. And then like, like everything Hoseki else can be see. like, we did actually verify this. Exactly. Customer yeah. service line email makes it more comfortable. Yeah. So that was, that, that was our first product. But quickly we realized that in order to scale the business, we need to actually target both sides, mm -hmm. um, primarily partnering with institutions. Um, so yeah, we are, we were already seeing a lot of demand from institutions about transparency. I was skeptical because the whole, issue with proof of reserves historically has been the demand and the like requirement angle. So one, customers of exchanges historically and normally aren't really demanding them to be transparent in, in any real way. And two, they're not required to, to be. There's um, no rule mandating it. Right. And they don't want to be too open about their outflows if they can or if they can help it. So that's always been the issue, but we're actually seeing a lot of demand now from exchanges and other institutions about being public. Interesting. Um, we think it's more of a marketing angle from them which is fine. Well, because it's kind of a hot, again, since FTX, it's, it is a hot issue. You have right? to differentiate yourself. What yeah. makes you different today than, uh, you know, Yeah, FTX. you hear that Dan Machashevsky from CMS. It is a hot <laughs> issue, Dan. He's skeptical. Um, that Not that it's good, just that, like, anyone cares. They do care, Dan. It's, it, I just think it has to happen. I don't, I don't exactly know the time horizon. I'd like it to happen sooner rather than later. Me too. Uh, but it has to happen because... Uh, seems like a no-brainer. Well, we have the tooling to be transparent. And again, like, it's it's uh, it's just a better financial better financial infrastructure than what we have today. Before we end, let's talk a little bit about Bitcoin culture and the future of Bitcoin. Sam, you've seen a lot of the phases of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. participate in them. I mean, I, I think about how you were thankfully extricated from the clutches of the Algorand Foundation, um, and uh, but you've worked at Fidelity. You've you're a startup founder. Um, you've worked on Bitcoin technologies and and crypto technologies. There's an interesting debate happening in the Bitcoin community about the future of Bitcoin, as there always is, by the way. But I think spurred on in particular this year because of the rise of inscriptions and ordinals. Now people have NFTs on Bitcoin, then some other degenerates made a way to do fungible tokens on Bitcoin. And that's driven a lot. I think $175 million in fees alone just from inscription activity paid to miners this year. It sort of raises this long-term question, is Bitcoin a technology platform for application development or is Bitcoin a monetary asset? It obviously is both, but there's two camps. They say it should only be one or the other or it should be all of them or what's your view on this just broadly? I and does it matter? I don't know. I don't really think it does. <laughs> um, I think, it, I think it'll, it will be both. I think it'll primarily be a monetary network that has some ancillary application development on top of it, but I think mainly it'll be a monetary network. 
you know, I, 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 I really like run the gamut, man. I, I was, I was, I was completely ignorant when I first started, became very dogmatic and now I'm kind of just more of a moderate. <laughs> um, so I, I wasn't around during the block size wars, right? I was, I was in the space, but I didn't have enough context to really understand what was going on. So I think this is probably somewhat similar. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a capitalist. So if there's demand for something, then there's demand for something. And if people are willing to pay for it and they're willing to pay for it. And if it's functional, then it's functional. Um, which is what I think the current ordinal sort of space looks like. Yeah. You know, people tend to make Bitcoin their identity. I, I can't think of a better, I can't think of an analogy for what there, we're There's an interesting, uh, my friend Dennis Porto characterized it this way. So there's a concept called the zeal of the convert. If you look at sure. uh, religions, for example, particularly like newer sects of religions, they tend to get increasingly more dogmatic. Um, and it's sort of like, I just found out about Bitcoin and now I'm here to defend it, not here to- right not even save it. It's sort of like in, in communities, the newest entrants tend to be the most aggressive, mm -hmm. right? And, and the most, um, closed minded, frankly, but it's been around, you know, at least four years of extreme Bitcoin of like a extreme core contingent of, yeah. I mean, my, I, I really think that it was pretty, um, the current I would call monetary maximalism. And again, I'm really not necessarily taking sides on this issue and just sort of my view on the current dominant culture in Bitcoin is that it really exploded during COVID. That was when mm. you had Clubhouse and pot there was nothing else to do but listen yeah, to Bitcoin Clubhouse podcasts. Was such a nightmare. It was the best. Dude. You that, loved it. You I were did. you were all over. I it. did. But you've had a good radio voice. Thank you so much. Uh, I've been called the James Earl Jones of Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> um, even after the block size wars, obviously it emanates from because the block size wars was also a dispute, sort of about the, a similar idea. I would say less about applications platform in retrospect it seemed existential or it seems it seemed like it was yeah it was more about like payments and and speed versus like you know fidelity of the network and, and obviously the small blockers prevailed with bitcoin well i mean i think it's similar in the sense that you have you have tech folks that are in, are, are, are very opinionated about how it should work but then you have demand from other people about what they of what they want right and i think the tech folks won out during the block size wars, which was good. Well, and a lot of people too, like that had, I mean, think about Vitalik Buterin, right? I mean, he wanted to make Bitcoin more expressive. That was rejected by the communities so right. when created Ethereum. I mean, and there was many such cases even before the block size wars because it was common knowledge and, and agreed upon, I would say it was mainstream culture in Bitcoin before Ethereum that anything great an altcoin came up with would one day be incorporated into Bitcoin. You had Omni, we know right? that hasn't happened though, right? Like that, that view is no longer the dominant view in Bitcoin. But maybe it's ascending again. Well, no, I think some people still hold that view that eventually it will come back to Bitcoin. But again, I don't know how realistic that is. Well, especially I, I, now. I, it, well, it just definitely, it still may be possible for sure. I think it's, if last year it, and the year before, it felt almost like a 0% chance that that would happen. Well, I now mean, I think it's the chances rising again that it will happen, but it definitely hasn't happened, right? I mean, right. all the stuff DeFi and, and NFTs and whatnot that people built in other cryptos did not, in fact, come to Bitcoin, really. It's not the base layer. Well, and I think what's important here too, I mean, I've, I've been fortunate, I mean, before it's not the right word, I've, I've, I've got the scars of having gone to Ethereum conferences, XXX, <laughs> and also Bitcoin conferences. The cultures yeah. are very different. Very different. When you go to an Ethereum conference, there's a lot of, and I mean this in a literal sense, colors. Yeah. Uh, it's very optimistic and playful. Uh, when you go to a Bitcoin conference, it's like, dude, we're here to take down the fucking system. <laughs> so it's, 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 uh, and, and that, and that has effects on what the system itself can do. Yeah. Um, but there are some really interesting developments. I think inscriptions and ordinals are quite interesting. I think generally. so too. Yeah. There's this thing, BitVM. Have you seen this thing? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Quite interesting. Again, a, a discovery, effectively a discovery. Wait a second. We can do much more robust scripting right now. Right. 
Um, people are figuring out how to use it, but it's not doesn't require any upgrade. And there's like enhanced, I would say this year, interest in new layers, new types of layer two networks. There's several teams building sovereign rollups that will right. sort of have similar functionality to the rollups in the Ethereum world on Bitcoin. So, I mean, how I approach this personally and how we approach it as a company is we're Bitcoiners. Like I, I genuinely don't hold anything else but Bitcoin. Um, not, I'm, not because I... Not really because I don't want to. It's just the thing I understand the most. I don't understand synthetic assets. I don't come from finance. Bitcoin, I have no questions about Bitcoin. It makes it makes sense to me. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable leveraging that and putting like my entire life into it effectively. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm not at least anymore. I'm not dogmatic about it. It's not at the core of my soul. It's it's money, which 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 is incredibly necessary for the world. And I think this monetary paradigm will change the world. I don't know if it's going to be for the better or for the worse, but it's going to change the world. I know that, and I want to be a part of it. It's it's not a moral imperative. Yeah, let's hope it is for the better. I know people like you guys I, are working to I, make it so. Yeah, exactly. 2024 going to be a big year for Hoseki. Uh, dude, Q1 is going to be a big year for Hoseki. Yeah, we've got a lot of announcements. Um, we just brought Xander Karpusis on board uh, from Strike. Um, we got another big announcement coming up uh, in a couple months. So, yes, yeah, stay tuned. We're at uh, Hoseki app on Twitter. Love it. And uh, Hoseki.app is the website. Correct. Sam Abasi, founder CEO of Hoseki. Thank you so much for coming on Galaxy Brains, my friend. Thanks, Alex. That's it for this week's episode of Galaxy Brains. Thanks to our guest, Sam Abasi from Hoseki app and my friend, Bimnet Abibi from Galaxy Trading. That's it. Have a safe and happy weekend and we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.